is Jerome. I'm the Associate Minister here at St Mark's. Now, um, if Paul had Barry's easel and Leslie's talk, he wouldn't have had to have that long chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. But, um, but we will look at what Paul has to say um, and look a little bit more deeply. But in this, just, in the next few moments, um, I'm sure we all have it. It's a dial. It's a kind of like a sensor dial. And I'm turning my sensor dial down. So don't take too seriously my next few phrases, words, expressions. But um, you know those people? So excited. Always excited. You know, it's a rainy, dull day and they're excited. It's a wonderful day. I've just gone for a run this morning. Of course you've gone for a run this morning. And I'm going to church. Church is great. Okay, that's, that's good. Now, there's nothing wrong with those people. I just don't always understand. And, and also, and also I'm, I'm not sure I have a word for you this morning. But you sit back and you enjoy. And I know you will because you, you won't be able to help yourself. But... But for the rest of us that are a little bit like me, there is a word of hope. You see, some of you might be a little bit like me in that I sometimes describe my life as a little bit lethargic, where my intentions and my heart are good. And I I meet people like this. Intentions and heart is good, but somehow just a little bit lethargic. It's it's as Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And some of you may resonate with that. Some of you may have a sense of what I mean when I say that. But there can be a variety of reasons why we might feel lethargic. Many of us in life will face disappointments and face difficulties and hardships. Many of us will face losses. Sometimes we're talking financial things, sometimes we're talking health, some, otherwise some other sort of circumstance, and we've all faced things like this. And when you face enough things like this, yeah, one can become a little bit numb and a little bit lethargic. There can be other things as well. There can be opposition. In some countries, it's outright opposition. Um, we're f- threat of life loss of possessions. Maybe in our country, in our society, the most we might think about is ridicule or mockery. That's something Christians and the church have experienced over the decades and maybe still do. But I think there's something even more today that we face. And it's in some ways almost worse than outright opposition. It's almost an indifference a disregard. Christianity isn't even worth talking about. It, 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 it isn't even worth being brought into the public sphere sometimes. It, it might even seem, if people were allowed to fully express or think through their thoughts, they might even think that it's pity that they have for these Christians, who have these wishful hopes, hopes of life everlasting, of life beyond death, Living in the spirit, that's right. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and wanting them to live in the spirit. And their hope, the hope that we hold, sometimes looks pitiable to people. They feel sorry for us. 
But I actually think we have an enviable hope. An enviable hope. But Paul does suggest in his writing today that if we cannot hold to this belief that there is a resurrection beyond the dead, then maybe our hope is pitiable. And Paul wants the Corinthians to be assured of this hope. And so he suggests early on in this section that hope or um, that their hope is a pitiable hope without the resurrection. And so Paul, as he preached to them, we could ask ourselves, what is it that they didn't believe in? What, what was it about the resurrection of the dead that they didn't believe in? Now, we kind of guess at that a little bit, but there are some clues. So it's clear that they believed in the gospel that they received. So Paul talks to them about that at the beginning of chapter 15. He talks about the gospel, the good news that he brought them. He said, For I passed, for I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So this was the gospel that he brought to them. And they believed this. So it seems as though they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but there was something about the resurrection of the dead that they didn't believe in. Was it that they believed that Jesus could be raised, but they weren't so sure they would be raised? That could be one possibility. Uh, there are some clues and hints, and particularly next week, as we move into the next part of chapter 15, there might be some further hints. And I would say that I think that particularly in the ancient Greek and ancient Roman times, when they held of a view of belief in life after death, it was often of the spirit of the soul that might have immortality and go on, but not the body. And so it might be a bodily resurrection that they might be having trouble with. And certainly the rest of chapter 15 starts to allude to that. But whatever it is, Paul wants them to have full confidence in their full resurrection, in a resurrection of their body and soul, that just as Christ was raised, so too will they be raised. And so he... he he links those two ideas. He says, if you've believed in the resurrection of Jesus, then believe also in your resurrection. He links those two ideas together. For he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he says, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, well, then you can't really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and listen to the logic of how he puts this. He says, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. This is such an important idea for him. We sometimes talk about primary issues and secondary issues. Unfortunately, Christians sometimes have lost blood over secondary issues. Um, and one day we'll meet God and we might find we were wrong about some of those secondary issues, but that won't actually matter at that point. But the primary issues, those are the ones which at which point if a person doesn't believe, it may actually mean they may not understand what it means to be a Christian. And for Paul, this is one of those, that Christ was raised and they will be raised. 
And he's saying, if, if you don't believe this, then, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. That's how strongly he believes in it. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And see how he links these things. That Christ's death and resurrection actually vindicate Christ and make him the perfect sacrifice. And if he wasn't raised, then all of a sudden we're uncertain about who he was and what he said and what he taught. But because he was raised, we feel confident that our sins are forgiven. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep are in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I must have been um, 18, 19, 20, 21, around that stage of my life. Um, I had just come out of depression. I'd been invited be a part of a faith community, a different one than from which I'd been a part of. And in that time, I had a very rapid growth in my faith. I started to read the Bible. Uh, connections started to be made of things that I had believed. All, the, all of a sudden, the dots started to be connected. The light bulb went off, and I was very excited about my faith. And I started to even have an apologetic. An apologetic is like a, a defense, uh, um, a way of these are my reasons for believing and a defence against those that might have different ideas. And, and one of my defences was, which I now see as wrong, and, and this very verse undercuts this idea, but my thinking was this. I would say to myself that, well, if I'm wrong and there isn't um, a resurrection and if there isn't eternity, well, at least I, having followed the teachings of scripture, at least I will have lived a good life. That's what I told myself. At least I would have lived a good life. And I thought to myself, and these other people, if they're wrong though, they lose out big time. If there is eternal life to be had, they could be losing out. But, but if I'm wrong, oh well, I, at least I've lived a good life. Well, if we look at this verse carefully, that's not what Paul says at all. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, if our hope is only good for this life, like it, it helps us to live a good life only now, he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, if there's no eternal life, he thinks our life is most to be, our hope is most to be pitied. Those are some strong words. And it completely undercuts the thinking that I once had. And this passage actually helped me realise how wrong that thinking was. Paul goes further on in beyond our reading today. For those that do have their Bibles open um, from verse 30. Paul talks about the suffering, so verse 30 from chapter 15. The suffering that he's endured. He says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, um, some people think that might have been literal, but probably more metaphorical. He's talking about the opposition he faced in Ephesus. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with, with no more than human hopes. What have I gained? If I went through all of this with just, 
hopes that are from a human origin, not of divine origin, if, that all, if my hope is just human imaginings, wishful thinking, what have I gained? And then he quotes from Isaiah. He says, if the dead are not raised, and he quotes from Isaiah, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's suggesting that the Christian life, because of our hope, we will endure things, we will live generously, we will be willing to sacrifice our life because of our hope in ways that we might not if we did not have such a hope. And he then goes on to say that, well, if that's not true, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, some would say, oh, that's, that's pretty poor. Surely, even if there was no eternal life, we can do good things in this life. Now, I don't have time to go into this too deeply, but I want to leave you with a thought. When there is no eternity, for some things that are of such importance, all of a sudden it renders, the, it renders those things, whether, whether we're talking about love, whether we're talking about goodness, whether we're talking about justice, the moment you take eternity out of that, it starts to erode and render those things meaningless and absurd. You, you might need to think on that and ponder that for a moment. But somehow, there is something in our hearts that know that some things make sense because they go on and some things make sense because there's something beyond this life. I live here in Australia and in whatever way that I think I have want, I am most wealthy, incredibly wealthy. At every point that I think that, oh, that I'm in want and I'm in need, really, I am most wealthy. And so how do I make sense of my life here and the life of somebody else that may not live beyond the age of three because of poverty and hunger? And the more you dwell and consider some of these things, the more that some of the ideas of justice and love and goodness and righteousness start to become absurd in the whole bigger scheme of things without something beyond this life, without a justice beyond this life, without a hope beyond this life. Some things, if there was just an end to it, just seem so wrong. I think Paul wants to call the Corinthians to an enviable hope beyond death. That we have something that actually really makes sense. Our story from beginning to end fits, for me, my experience of life and the way that I see things, it actually fits. And sometimes I look at the worldview of others and I just, it doesn't make sense. Beyond, if there is no life beyond this, it doesn't make sense. And so Paul's argument goes on. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, he knows they believe this, so he's linking it back to that. But Christ has indeed been raised. So, we don't, so our hope is not a pitiable one because Christ has been raised. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also 
uh, comes also through a man. This is verse 21. And, and here, in this particular passage, he really wants to highlight the humanity of Christ. And there's a point to that. Because as he talks about how through Adam came sin and death, he now wants to talk about through another human, through Jesus, came life and resurrection. And so the only way Jesus could stand in our stead is if he was one of us, right? Like if, if, somebody, if, if humanity deserves death for our actions, for our life, and Jesus steps in, how can he step in on our behalf if he is not one of us? He stands in our stead and on our behalf because he is one of us. He was made to be one of us when he became human. Now, in Paul's writings, it's very clear. Paul knows Jesus is equal with God. But in this context, he wants to emphasize the humanity of Christ here. Because he wants to talk about how resurrection has come to us. And that if it's come to Christ, who was made human, and that means able to be killed, and he was brought to life, then this is true for us. And that's how he's linking it all together. Christ is the first fruits. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all would be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So he's making the point that now we know that Christ was raised from the dead. And again, if you read the beginning of chapter 15, you'll see he talks about all the witnesses, even 500 at one time saw Jesus. He says some of them, um, he says most of them actually are still alive. Some of them have fallen asleep. So you can go check this out for yourself. That's why we look at the Bible, not simply as a religious text, but as history. It's a historical text. And as history, there were witnesses, over 500. That it would have been very easy to discredit the writings in the early church, to say, well, that wasn't true. I was there. Paul's, Paul wants them to test it. There were up to 500 witnesses, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. So they, they know that the resurrection of Jesus is true. In the same way that they know that that's true, Jesus is the first fruits of humanity's resurrection. And first fruits, sometimes um, that concept of giving the first fruits, the first part of the crop um, as, as an offering to God, we understand that as uh, both this was not only... Uh, uh, Jewish or Christian understanding, but, but it was also in ancient other religions that you give the first of the crops uh, to God. But, but it was reduced to an idea of it's just the first part, the first of the crops. But actually, first fruits was that this is representative of the whole. So the first fruits was like saying this actually all comes from God and belongs to God. It's the same way we should look at our offerings, right? So sometimes the concept of a tithe, um, I think, is Old Testament. I think the New Testament is actually far greater. There's a far greater burden on us that actually all that we have is God's. We then make a choice how much we're going to keep back to live. It's actually all God's. So a tithe might actually be the minimum, <laughs> but, but actually it's all God's. And so the f first fruits is representative of the whole. It's not just that this was just the first bit. It's actually saying this first bit represents the whole that we're offering back to God. And so Jesus is the first fruits. He's the beginning of the whole 
plan of salvation. So if Christ has been raised, that what has happened to Jesus will also happen to us. That's Paul's argument here. He goes on to talk about how death is the final enemy and that Christ has gained the victory over death. That God has put all things under Jesus' feet, even death. But now God is over all. Death, if it seems like an intrusion, it's because it is. I've shared this example with youth before, and maybe I've even shared it from up here before, but it's sometimes hard to take the very basic elements of our faith and realise what a huge implication and relevance it has for our lives. So taking something like the resurrection and going, well, what does it have to do with my day-to-day living? It's not until we're actually facing death that we might start to go, wow, a hope in the resurrection is something pretty amazing. It's not until we're faced with the loss of a loved one that all of a sudden the resurrection of the dead, all of a sudden there's this amazing hope that wells up inside of us. It's not until we start to really feel the deterioration of our body and we're really facing death in the face, like really looking at it, I've taken funerals before and you may have heard that um, people sometimes accuse Christians of our beliefs as a crutch. It's a crutch. It's it's wishful and hopeful desires that we have to get us through the difficulties of life. And in that sense, it's a pitiable hope. We don't have a pitiable hope. We have a real hope, an enviable one. And when I've taken some of these funerals, if it's a funeral of an older person, and I've sometimes known that the congregation mostly are unbelievers, there's sometimes a sentiment that sometimes is felt, but sometimes expressed, sometimes even expressed by words up the front or in a poem. And and the expression is something like this. It's that, well, you know, death is just a natural part of life. You see, I think that idea is a crutch. I think that idea that, that you know, this is, this is another way of just coping with death. We just minimalise it and just say it's just a natural part of life. You see, when I've taken the funeral of a young person, I remember um, taking the funeral not so long ago. Uh, I think it was just before, I remember actually, it was in the week that I was interviewed to be part of this church. It was a family friend um, in her 30s. She left behind a husband and two children. Um, And she passed away. And I was at the funeral. And so I'm looking at the face of a lot of young people. And some of those young people would not have been believers. And I promise you, that sentiment that death is just a natural part of life is never there at the funeral of a young person. Nobody's sitting there going, oh, death is just a natural part of life. People feel like something terrible has gone wrong. On Something very wrong has happened. This person has been robbed and those that love them have been robbed. We 
And even when we're touched in those moments, it only takes a few weeks before we forget, but in that moment, our hearts are crying out to us, something is wrong about this. And if we listen, we'd hear that death is an intrusion. It's not what God intended. We were created as part of his creation to be in a love relationship that would go on and on and on. What an amazing story we have. In the face of so much that's wrong, we have such an amazing hope. I don't think we have a crutch. I think we have an enviable hope. An enviable hope. How do we allow this hope to transform our lives? See, Paul's, as he comes to the end of his letter, he's sharing this doctrine. And I think it actually gives a foundation for the rest of what he's talking about in his letter. He's wanting them to live in the Spirit. A life in the Spirit is one where you're not trying to boast and not trying to be better than one another. It's a life of service, service and love. It's a life where there's sexual purity. It's a life where um, you consider the other better than yourself. It's a life where there's order in your worship and you're considering the other, not yourself. It's a life which is a way of love. And why would you live this life? Because you have a hope beyond this life. You were made for more than this. And so you can give yourself freely and readily and generously. And so we, we have an enviable life in the spirit. It's an epic story of hope and there is no comparison. You watch the movies, you watch, you read a story and, and, and they're inspiring. And I have to admit, I, I, that's one of my places that I go to when I'm feeling down, I escape into a movie. But I'm left wanting at the end. The moment it doesn't have the Christian, it doesn't hold up that Christian hope, I'm left wanting, there's something missing. Even in the best of those movies, there's something missing without that eternal hope. We have an enviable life in the spirit. And I think it might be an antidote to our lethargic state. As we testify to the resurrection hope that we have and we testify to one another, even now, in this community, I'm, as best as I can, sharing and trying to journey with others in that my hope is that my hope will increase as I journey with others and talk through this life of transformation that God has called us to. And that as we testify to each other and remind each other and spur each other on, my hope will grow. And I'll be reminded of what God has for us. And as I'm reminded, this transformation will take place. And as this transformation takes place, the life of Christ will be in me. And as the life of Christ is in me and as the life of Christ is in us, people will see this enviable hope that we have. And so as we come to next week, Paul wants to bring us to that point where he cries out and wants the church to cry out, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.